Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Recurring nightmare. At least 18 people are dead after another mass shooting in the United States. We'll hear from an innkeeper in Lewiston, Maine, who is struggling to process what has happened yet again. Days of anguish. We'll speak to an Israeli man whose son, daughter-in-law, and two young grandchildren are among the family members being held hostage by Hamas. He hopes they'll make it home to him, but fears they may not. To him, it is not just news. Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief has lost much of his immediate family in an Israeli air raid. One of his colleagues tells us the killings and Wa'al Daktu's staggering personal loss will not stop him from reporting on the war. Sweetening the deal, given the ongoing confusion over whether Switzerland is Sweden or vice versa, the Scandinavian country, uh, that's Sweden, sets out to put itself on the map. Better get cracking. Access to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency is on a USB key protected by a password. A password that its owner has forgotten. Some hackers say they can get him his cash if only he'd trust them. And spreading the love. Against all odds, the divisive, some might say inedible, Australian topping Vegemite is celebrating its 100th anniversary. The curator of a museum devoted to the food's creator tries to explain why it's worth its salt. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that takes the path of yeast resistance. He went out for a night of bowling. He hadn't even been in the alley 10 minutes when he heard a pop. He thought it was a balloon at first. But when he turned around, he saw a man with a gun. So he ran. That's what one witness told the Associated Press about his terrifying experience last night at a bowling alley in the city of Lewiston, Maine, population roughly 38,000. Officials say the gunman began his rampage at the bowling alley before moving to a nearby restaurant where he continued to shoot. At least 18 people are dead. As we went to air tonight, law enforcement officers were still searching for the shooting suspect, who they say is a member of the U.S. Army Reserves. Billy Jane Cook runs an inn in Lewiston, Maine. That's where we reached her. Billy Jane, can you take us back to last night and when you first realized something was very wrong? I had gone over to Bates College for a candidate forum uh, because I'm running for city council. A bunch of us were standing outside the building on campus waiting for the student to come take us in. And I happened to ask some people, I'm like, does anyone know what's going on? I passed a ton of emergency vehicles on the way in. And then somebody else had told a story about two police cars that were flying down the street pretty fast. Right around that time, because I'm still thinking it's like Mm -hmm. a car accident or a bad fire, Right around that time, I got a text on my phone from the school, from the high school where my son goes, that said the school was on lockdown because of an active shooter situation, and they were having parent-teacher conferences that evening. So we all started scrambling, trying to get more information, and and at that point, we didn't know what we were seeing and hearing was true Mm -hmm. versus false. Eventually, obviously, Bates went into lockdown. The forum was canceled. We all just kind of dispersed. I walked back to my car. I still was not getting the gravity of the situation. It only became clear to me when I was driving home because there were so many emergency vehicles. They just seemed to be coming from every direction. Um, There were, like, I couldn't even count how many they were. The sky was filled with helicopters. It was just this insane scene like from some weird movie or whatever 
it was a long night. I can tell you, even at four or five this morning, I don't think anyone in Lewiston was sleeping. People were still on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you slept at all? I slept a couple hours this morning. I slept about three hours this morning, and um, I own an inn. So uh, all my employees are off because we're on the lockdown. And between fielding cancellations, um, I was also dealing with bookings from uh, you know news sites trying to find rooms up here. You know, we're we're hearing certainly a, we've covered these stories so often, unfortunately frequently, <laughs> and we're also hearing from more and more people as we cover these stories, Billy Jane, who have lived through these kinds of events, these kinds of mass shootings in the United States more than once. Has this happened to you before? Yep. I'm going to tell you that back in 1984, 1985, wasn't necessarily a mass shooting. Uh, Shootings weren't still as commonplace in the United States as they were. Uh, But I was like a junior, senior in high school. I was working at the mall and there was a shooting at one of the stores in the mall and I very much the ride home that I took last night when I started to realize the magnitude very much reminded me of how upset I was when I got home from work that night like 40 years ago it was the same feeling it's mind-blowing to me to think that this is the second time although in reality it's not the first time I was definitely closer to the situation this time, it's just because it's so big and in my town, that's the only connection I have to it. Do you know what I'm saying? I wasn't at the bowling alley, thank God. I wasn't at, at the bar, thank God. But it's here. It's in our town. It's it's, it's a huge thing. We're still a small town. Um, Do you know any of the victims so far? I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone. I haven't heard any names. I've heard you know, some rumors. I had somebody else call up earlier to check in on us. And she told me that her friend's husband had been killed. I don't, I don't know anything about that, but I can tell you this. We are a small enough community. And even though I've only been here five years, I can tell you that a huge part of our community has been born and lived their entire lives here. And they all know each other. And there isn't going to be anybody in this town that doesn't know somehow multiple people that were impacted. I have zero doubt that first responders are going in last night and finding people that maybe their kids played together or maybe they went to school together or whatever the case may be. They knew people that they were treating or whatever. As it got to the hospital, same thing. I I have to believe that everybody knew everybody that they were dealing with last night because we are not that big. Given what you've just said and the fact that police are still looking for the person they believe was behind this mass shooting, how how are you dealing with that? How are people, your neighbors, how are you all coping? Honestly, everybody's in lockdown. So aside from like conversations or texts, it's not like you really know what's going on in somebody's world. But I'm guessing that everybody is literally in the same shock that I am in right now, which is slowly starting to leak into just the anger and frustration that this keeps happening. This keeps being accepted here in America. We are so numb to it. And the thing that goes through my mind more than anything is that we hear all the time, It is not if, but when. Our when was last night. Were you surprised that that when happened, that it came to you? Shocked. Absolutely shocked. Nobody ever thinks it's going to happen in their town. Nobody ever thinks, oh, that happened somewhere else. It happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. And we're so numb to it here in America that it just keeps happening everywhere. Billy Jane, please take care of yourself. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. That was Billy Jane Cook, who runs an inn in Lewiston, Maine. At least 18 people were shot and killed in that city last night.
Many families in Israel are still anxiously waiting for news about their relatives who are being held hostage by Hamas. So far, four people have been released. Earlier this week, Hamas freed two elderly women, and almost a week ago, two American women were freed. The Israeli military says 224 people are still being held captive. Seven of those hostages are relatives of Gilad Korngold. His son, Tal, Tal's wife and two young children, his daughter-in-law's mother, her aunt, and her aunt's 12-year-old. We reached Gilad Korngold in Kibbutz Gvulat, Israel. Gilad, you're waiting for word about so many of your loved ones. I'm wondering how you've managed to get through all of these days. It was terrible, terrible, terrible for our family, for myself. We decided that we'll be strong. The problem is that we all the time uh, look television and uh, about any news, and uh, we miss them. The, the non-knowledge, okay, that you don't know what's really happened to them, if they're safe, if they're, the children have food. It's very tough days. I don't think that the human being can live like this. Your son, Tal, who's 38 years old, is among the missing, as is are his children uh, and Tal's wife. What about your okay. grandchildren? Yeah. They're so... They're so young, Gilad. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they're like? Wow. My grandson, Nave, it's eight years old. He loves to build in Lego and mm-hmm. puzzles. Uh, in the last birthday, we bought him a global uh, puzzle, very big, 2,500 pieces. <laughs> and he liked to play football. Uh, he claimed walls. And he swim and he sing. Very, very intelligent boy. My daughter loves to play with the dolls and she jump on trampoline. This is your and granddaughter? She and she, yes, yes, yes. She's three. Yes, and she loves to cook with her mother. All the time that the mother cooks, she, she helps her. She's three and a half years. Quiet, quiet family. Very, you know, unique family. They never leave the children alone since they're born. Ah, this is my family. This is my my lost family. And in this shelter was more people. There was Adiz, my daughter-in-law, father, that a week ago we acknowledged that he murdered on the first day. And her mother, Shushan, her aunt, Sharon, and her daughter, Noam, she's 12 years old. All of them, we we have noticed by Israeli uh, authorities their caption in, in Gaza Street. Without knowledge, what situation? Either live or, or dead. As you wait all of these days, Gilad, and you see the release of the other hostages, the two Americans who were, who were first to be released, they are relatives of your daughter-in-law. When you see that, though, does that give you hope? No, 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 no. I tell you why. First, uh, I, I was happy, okay? Uh, no hope, because we know that all the children and the and the mothers must be released immediately. And these two women uh, was released because maybe they are American, or because mm-hmm. uh, Hamas want to send a message. I don't know. We try to be uh, with hope all the time that they are live, but I need to understand that maybe something happened to them. In the night, it's it's worse. Because uh, during the day, we, we everybody in my family here has something to do. But the night is it's terrible. The night is terrible. You start to think what's happened. We know that there was uh, wear a short pajama. The kids are uh, they warm are uh, with their mother? Maybe separated. We don't know nothing. We know that Tal was separate from them. Of course, he, he took them first. Uh, what's happened to them? We don't have any knowledge. How are you feeling, Gilad, about the possibility of a ground invasion by the IDF when you think about your, your loved ones still there? Without the politics, if somebody, if somebody uh, wants to go ground something, uh, I, I agree. Let's exchange, give my family back, put your family, and then make decision what whatever you want. I think first, first, there is to release all the children and the women at least. First, go inside, outside, I don't care. I want my family back, really. 
I trust mm-hmm. my Israeli army, but I think first we have to release at least the children and the mothers. What are people saying to you to to help get you through and to help you keep hope at this time? I, I tell you something, okay? Mm-hmm. My son and my family, we are also Austrian uh, citizens. And uh, the other side of the family, my daughter-in-law, my grandson, my granddaughter, they are German uh, citizens. And yesterday, I was invited to a private uh, meeting with the Chancellor of Austria. It was arrived afternoon. And after me, he met our Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I was about 35 minutes sitting with him. I will not say what we talk inside, but I know the Austrian uh, work very hard to find my son, and I trust them. I have hope, but, you know, in the other side, I must be prepared if something happens. I can live uh, with uh, no knowledge. Yeah. You mentioned that you prepare, you're trying to prepare for bad news, but do you also allow yourself to prepare for for a moment where they might come back, what you might say to them? Somebody told me, nobody has control what's happened. So uh, it's better to sit now and start to think what you're going to talk with them, what we are going to say to them uh, when they come back. And this is the good thinking that sometimes I sit and think how I can hug them, what conversation we can have with them. I don't know why would they come back, you know, with shock, with, with, I don't know. I don't know, but what I know for sure that I want my family back. I hope they get back to you, Gilad. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Please take care. Gilad Korngold's son and his family are among the 224 people being held hostage by Hamas. He's in Kibbutz Gvulat, Israel. And you can find that interview, along with photos of Mr. Korngold and his family, on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. It has been hailed as a, quote, national treasure woven into the fabric of Australia, unquote. It is not koala bears or Kylie Minogue. It is salty, blackish, and either inedible or an essential part of your daily routine and identity, depending on who you ask. The topping, not to be confused with its British cousin Marmite, is celebrating its 100th birthday this week. I'm talking about Vegemite. Liza Robinson is the curator of a museum dedicated to the spread and its creator, Cyril Callister. We reached her in Raglan, Australia. Liza, I know we're, we're catching you very early in the morning in Australia. Is, is Vegemite on the breakfast menu? Uh, actually, it is. Yes, mm-hmm. I've actually, since the 100th on Tuesday here, um, I've been having a little bit more because I've been so exhausted um, from all the work that's been involved in the 100th anniversary and all the celebrations and all the interviews and everything. So definitely Vegemite this morning. <laughs> is there only one way to eat it? You know, I've seen the toast, butter, and then Vegemite on top, or are there variations that you like to no, use? Not anymore. Not anymore. I mean, of course, originally yeah, there was pretty much the only, you know, the original sort of Vegemite on toast. But as the world has evolved, it's become quite a culinary um, accent to lots of different recipes. And um, in fact, the museum here in Beaufort um, had a local artist create a chocolate Vegemite Oreo, oh. which is absolutely delicious. Okay. Interesting. I'm imagining it, but you know what? I I haven't. I don't think I've tried Vegemite because I feel like I would remember it. So, let's get to the down to the basics. What when you first crack that jar open? What does it smell like? Well, I've been to, see. I've been brought up on it, so to me, it it smells great. But um, to new people, of course, um, it's it, they don't like the smell initially. Mm. Actually, it's pretty strong, um, and it's black. I mean, it's a black spread. Um, and, of course, naturally, you know, all my friends in North America, you know, normally go to, like, lather it on like they do with peanut butter or jelly or something like that. Well, that's not how you eat it. You eat it with, like, a very light smear over, okay. over however you you know, whether it's on a crumpet or whether it's on toast. So when you, when you do do that light smear, 
What would you say, you know, the the forward notes are in terms of the taste? What does it taste like if you could compare it to anything? Uh, it's salty. Okay. It's salty. Like a sharp cheese yeah. or? Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, it's a very unique taste. It's very unique. I mean, and of course, cheese and Vegemite sandwiches are, you know, famous here in Australia as well, okay. of course. And <laughs> there's Marmite too out there. I know they're very different, but how are they different? Well, to be quite honest with you, I can't comment on that. I have never mm. tried Marmite. Never. But why would you? You um, love Vegemite. And exactly. <laughs> and I was brought up on it. Um, but it's interesting. It's a very, it's, of course, Marmite was the original sort of salty paste that was originally created and Vegemite spun off that here in Australia. Um, but, you know, everyone that was born and raised on Vegemite pretty much has never, would never taste Marmite, would never even have it in their pantry. <laughs> It would be sacrilegious. What do you say, though, to people who are shocked yeah. that it is so beloved, but also that it's still around and so popular after a century? Well, it's look, that's an amazing story. And I think celebrating on Tuesday at the manufacturer's offices where Vegemite is made down in Port Melbourne here, um, there were hundreds of people there celebrating and they played the jingle that was created for their marketing campaign back in the 50s and 60s. And honestly, it, the, the whole, I don't know, there's something about Vegemite. It just goes through you. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's uh. like in your blood, in your, in, <laughs> in your DNA. You yeah. know, it's like, and everybody has a Vegemite story. It's, it's very much part of our culture. Um, and, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a bit. Yeah. And, and it was never more, more prevalent for me than being at this event last Tuesday. It was just amazing. People singing. The jingle, we're happy little Vegemites, as happy, bright as bright can be. We all enjoy our Vegemite for breakfast, lunch and tea. I mean, everyone was singing it. <laughs> well done. Your rendition was was lovely. I think you may have convinced me to try it. Try it at least. Uh, the, the museum itself. Uh, tell me Tell me about some of the exhibits. Um, so we have half the museum is memorabilia and historical artifacts and packaging. And the other half is sort of new merchandise where people can buy mm. um, logo Vegemite products and things. And we have a video that we've produced telling you the story of the history. And yeah. it's, a, it's a, again, a really fun experience. We've had two local um, artisans make selfie boards. Um, so people take their photos with the Vegemite selfie boards, <laughs> which is fun. And, and we've got the jingle going 24-7. Oh, well, you might get sick of it after a while, no? Maybe... The song, I mean. Oh, I, look, people ask me that, but it, I actually sort of tune out, so I don't hear it right. all the time. But yeah, so it, but it has to play, and people love it. They kind of come in and they sort of start to do a little skip, and <laughs> and then they start humming the jingle, and then like, oh yeah, they I, love it. <laughs> I saw a very funny video of uh, U.S. Embassy staff there trying it. Some loved it, some did yes. not. They said it is. It's, they asked the question: Is it is it just straight yeast? What is it? What is Vegemite? It's a yeast extract. Mm. So it was originally created from the byproduct from Carlton United Breweries here in, in Melbourne um, as a waste product. And then he basically, you know, rejigged it to become a vitamin B supplement. That was why it was initially, um, and of course, as a copy to Marmite, but um, mm. that was why it was originally. So it, it is a health product. So it does make you feel good. It gives you like that vitamin B boost. Oh, does it? Do you remember the first time you, you tried it as a child? Not the first time, but I mean, I distinctly remember, you know, my mother boiling fresh eggs and she would cut the toast up into little like long pieces and would have it on, Vegemite would be on it and you'd dip your Vegemite toast in your boiled egg. Is that how we should try it for the first time? Actually, no, I just like, I like a really good sour bread toast with a light smear of Vegemite. That, that's just the best. Okay. Might take your advice, Liza. Thank you. <laughs> my pleasure. We reached Liza Robinson in Raglan, Australia. For years, Wael Dahdu has made it his life's work to share the stories of Gaza with the rest of the world. He's the Gaza bureau chief for Al Jazeera. And last night, the story he shared was deeply and crushingly personal. Yesterday, Mr. Dahdu's wife, son, daughter, and grandson were all killed in an Israeli air raid. Footage broadcast on the network showed Mr. Dahdu touching the face of his dead 15-year-old son, Mahmoud, and carrying the body of his 7-year-old daughter, Sham. Jamal Ashayal is with Al Jazeera's digital division. He's a former senior correspondent for the network. We reached him in Doha. Jamal, have you have you had a chance to speak with Wael? 
I mean, I've messaged him. Uh, however, I haven't had the chance to speak to him. What, what has gone through is um, is something as you can imagine. Uh, yeah, I don't even know if most of losing your wife and, and 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 kids. Yes, um, but but on top of that, the, the way in which it's happened, Wael found out about the the death or the killing of his wife and children while he was on air. He saw the airstrikes, reported the airstrikes, and as he was reporting the airstrikes, he got the call. Who uh, called him? Uh, one of those who were at the hospital, obviously, well, somebody who's very, very well known, respected and loved uh, by not only the people of Gaza, but Arabic uh, speakers around the world who depend on him, who watch him and view him as uh, somebody who is synonymous with Gaza. And he's done it with a, with a certain calm or professionalism that is enviable. When Israel bombed Al Jazeera's uh, offices uh, in Gaza in 2021, while it was standing in the streets with the camera uh, as the attack happened, you know, he said, "Anhar al Burush, the tower has collapsed," and he said it in. He didn't say it out of hysteria. He didn't say it with any anger, as angry as we all were. He was so calm and collected. Well, I was Go just ahead, going sir. to ask what he's told you about how he is able to do that, about why it's important to you know, him to I've, do this I've, work. I've actually, well, why, he, why he's important to do this work, I, I will come to it now. I want people to understand here, somebody who was reporting live when his wife and two children were killed and grandchild, one of his grandchildren as well, who then went off air to pick up the dead body of his grandchild and to see his son lying dead in the hospital, who then went the next morning to bury them and pray over them and then decided to go back on air and said, I'm going back on air because I'm going to continue and I'm not going to allow them to silence me. And that this is my duty, this is my resistance to continue speaking the truth and telling the world what is happening. Yesterday when I was watching him and I was watching how he responded and how he was looking at his, his son, there's a, there's a video that went around. He said, um, you know, they're trying to take revenge against us for speaking the truth by killing our children. And then he says malish in, in, in Arabic, which means never mind. Um, and, it, and it almost became clear at that moment why and how he was able to be so calm throughout these years. It is only through a sense of uh, confidence in, in the mission that you have and that you have the responsibility of two million people or more to get their voices out to the world. It is that understanding of the responsibility that that is like real journalism really at its core and it is you know he reached a specific level of understanding and i think through that he's been able to get that clarity that calmness the collectiveness and the perseverance to continue despite all of this if we speak about the family he's lost they were in nusayrat how did they end up there why were they there they were there because the Israelis and the Americans claimed that it was safer for Palestinians to leave their homes in northern Gaza and uh, head southwards. So they left their homes in northern Gaza and they went south southwards. Um, it made no difference in the end, you know. And the well, you know, there is twenty-four journalists at least who have been killed in the past three weeks alone. Only just over a year has passed since our colleague uh, Shireen Abu Akleh was yeah. killed deliberately by an Israeli sniper on camera in the West Bank. Journalists who have been mm -hmm. killed or maimed, you know, shot in the eyes mm -hmm. by the Israelis over the past uh, 20 years. We've had, as I mentioned, our offices attacked more than once. We've had Javar al-Budiri also assaulted on camera. But to go after the family to go after wife and kids and grandchildren that, that is something else the committee it's, to protect journalists says, says that same number um as well at least 24 journalists 20 of them palestinian uh, and that's what they've been able to confirm have died since october 7th in this conflict and we've covered shirin abu akleh's story speaking to her family members several times on this program as well and uh, Israel, the IDF apologized, as you know, and says it wasn't intentional. 
though they have conceded that it was one of their own bullets. But what makes you believe that Wiles family was was targeted and that it wasn't, you know, them being caught up in in a bombing that where they were attacking Hamas? Yeah. There are two scenarios, okay? Either, as Israel has been claiming for the past 21 days, it is not targeting civilians and it is targeting Hamas fighters, okay? And that it is doing it with precision, at which point then the Israelis who claim to know that there are uh, rocket launchers in every hospital and in every church and in every school and that there are Hamas fighters in every residential building and in every church and in every school, they know that, at which point the question is then, why did you attack? Because that means you are targeting these people. Or they don't know that, and therefore it is an admission that they are killing indiscriminately. Both of those are condemnable. Both of those are war crimes. When we speak about journalists in Gaza, while uh, is only one of your colleagues that has children and has families there as well, and they continue to work there. And I wonder what they're telling you about how they're trying to, to do their jobs, as you say, and convey what is what is happening and what they're seeing while trying to keep their own families safe. We have Yumna. Yumna is one of our yeah. journalists, reporters for Al Jazeera English. Yumna Yes, she's a young, young Palestinian. Her and her family got in a car to leave their home in northern Gaza to move to the south. And then the bombing intensified in the south. So they decided to go back home, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you go? Where do you go? We have a colleague here, Tamar al-Mishal, who, who's from Gaza, who was also a, one of our correspondents. Uh, a couple of days ago, the Israelis bombed his house in Gaza. So you were asking earlier, how do we know they targeted? Mm-hmm. There is enough evidence to show you that this is not circumstantial. There is a very clear, when you have a track record of killing 24 journalists in the space of 20 days, when you have a track record of bombing the Al Jazeera offices in Gaza more than once, when you have a track record of uh, using a sniper to kill Shirin Abu Akhle. So anyone asking, how do you know? Look at all the evidence, and it's clear. Jamal, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jamal El-Shayal is a colleague of Wa'el Dahdu. Mr. Dahdu is the Gaza bureau chief for Al Jazeera. Yesterday, his family was killed in an Israeli air raid. Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. It was supposed to be a festive occasion, but this past weekend, a birthday party in northeastern Nigeria became a nightmare when it was raided by security forces. 76, quote, suspected homosexuals were arrested and accused of planning to participate in a gay wedding, a crime which carries severe potential penalties. Chizelu Emejulu is a human rights lawyer in Nigeria and the founder of Minority Watch, a group that advocates for the rights of LGBTQ Nigerians. We reached him in Abuja. Chizelu, has there been any news since the arrests, any word on how the people taken into custody, how they're doing? From the feedback I've gotten from my contacts, the arresting authorities, have, they handed these suspects over to the police. Mm-hmm. And at the police station, some of them are currently being released on bail. I don't know about the state of their mental health. I don't know about their well-being. But some of them are getting released at the moment, and we don't know the number of them. What is the age range of the people who were rounded up? People mostly are in their mid-20s, 20s generally, and the oldest of them could be in their early 30s. Mm-hmm. So, so that's these, their age. These are young people who, who were at a birthday party 
What yes. do you know about what happened? So my understanding of what transpired is that um, the, the raid happened due to a disgruntled person. So this person went ahead to report the matter to the authorities. And this is what led to the raid. It's a, a complaint that can have devastating consequences on the lives of people rounded up. What Definitely. kinds of things are they facing now that they've been charged? And we should say, you know, I saw the video. They're paraded really in front of media cameras as, as they're taken yeah. into custody. So they've, they've not been formally charged, right? But the arraignment says that they are conducting a gay wedding. And that in itself carries um, a found guilty they could be looking at 14 years in prison. There's actually a law that was signed in 2014 that seeks to criminalize same-sex marriages. But that same law is also, it went ahead to criminalize a lot more than same-sex marriages. It, it, it criminalized public display of affection. It criminalizes um, associations. And the, this law is called the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act. There have been other uh, raids and arrests like this one. There was another one in August. Yes. What do you think is behind all of this? Why is this happening more frequently now? So I, I would think that the, the reason behind all these arrests is we have a police system, the Nigerian security forces, failing in their duty to protect the citizens. So... This could be a way of showing us that they are working. And that is why when each, each time this arrest happens, they call the media and you know, parade these people. And these parades are clearly unlawful, but they still do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that corruption has a part to play in this also. Because the suspects, once they are arrested and mm -hmm. before they are granted bail, you know, regularly have to pay some money to the police. So the, the, the ones that actually end up in court are those that are not able to pay this bail money. What happens to people, you know, even if they're not convicted, you know, once they're outed in this way and paraded in this way, yeah. from people you've spoken to, what does it mean for their lives afterwards? It is, it is actually very devastating. I have spoken with... A lot of them, they were my clients, and their lives are shattered in the sense that many of them were not able to go back to their homes um, because um, they already seen, they have, you know, they have been exposed at the media. Many of them lost their jobs. Many of them could not go back to their families. There were a lot of them. In fact, some married men, there is a married man who... who um, he came to deliver the birthday cake. That was his involvement. So he was arrested, and now he, you know, his his marriage suffered. So just even when by association, even though he's heterosexual and married, just yeah, just even though he's heterosexual, because he was arrested, he was part of those who were arrested and paraded. And right now, the the one that happened last month, they are all out on bail. But many of them, if not most of them, cannot go back to their homes. In fact, they are currently at safe houses provided by some organizations that work for to you know protect LGBTQI persons in Nigeria here. So many of them currently cannot go back home mm -hmm. because of safety concerns. So these these arrests are always, always devastating to the victims, to the people involved. And despite everything that people in the community are facing, the criminalization of homosexuality, the threat of violence, the threat of persecution, and time in prison, there's still a yeah. strong activist community across Nigeria pushing for yeah. equality, for LGBTQ plus rights. You're one of the people trying to do that and, and help the community. Yeah. Yeah. How do you sustain That's that? What keeps you motivated? I, I just, um, I have a passion for social change and i'm also motivated by the fact that this is something that can be achieved i have looked at a lot of countries starting from the west from the us the uk and i've seen that 
they started, they did not start easy, this protection of the rights of LGBTQ people. It was, it used to be very bad. And even in, in many African countries, like in Kenya, for instance, where the, the, the Supreme Court finally affirmed the rights of LGBT people to set up their own organization. So these are wins. And I believe that if other countries could have their own wins, then Nigeria should not be an exception. And I know that with time, uh, it can be achieved. Chiselu, I'm glad we could speak. Thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Chiselu Emejulu is a human rights lawyer in Nigeria and the founder of the advocacy group Minority Watch. We reached him in Abuja. The stories of his behavior in the plaintiff's testimony have been monstrous. Today, Peter Nygaard took the stand himself to try to prove that he's not a monster. The 82-year-old former fashion executive is facing five counts of sexual assault and one of forcible confinement. Today, more than a month after the trial began, he testified, offering what his lawyer, Brian Greenspan, characterized as a clear, unequivocal denial of the alleged assaults, which five women have testified occurred between the 1980s and 2005. CBC News reporter Jamie Strachan was in the courtroom today. We reached him in Toronto. Jamie, as you've been taking in all of this testimony from Peter Nygaard, is, is there something in particular that stood out to you? Well, it's, it's really, Neil, the, the kind of two completely separate stories that we've heard through the course of, of this trial. We, uh, You know, the first few weeks was, we heard from the five accusers in this case who detailed very sordid, very disturbing, violent accusations uh, against Peter Nygaard. And then we've heard from Peter Nygaard the last couple of days on the stand um, a story that is completely different. He says that he never has seen these women, he's never met these women, he's never heard uh, of these women, and he's dismissed the allegations um, outright. So two very starkly different uh, tales that we've heard uh, in in this courtroom. And I think the other thing that has really stood out to me uh, as someone, you know, who's covered Peter Nygaard off and on over the years is, you know, I think many Canadians who watched his career evolve and develop over the years are used to, you know, this flamboyant fashion mogul, you know, with the golden mane, you know, surrounded by, you know, by models and in the courtroom, you know, we've seen a very old 82-year-old man who, you know, is, is very frail and looks every bit of uh, of his 82 years. If we talk about the, the women at the heart of this case, the five women who have testified, uh, as you mentioned, they've testified that Peter Nygaard sexually assaulted them. Just take us through what you can of, of their stories and the common threads Sure. There's a similar thread that kind of goes through all uh, of their accusations. All of them met Mr. Nygaard by chance, uh, either, you know, at a restaurant during a fashion event, uh, on a plane traveling uh, to the Bahamas, where there'd be an initial conversation. Then they would hear from Mr. Nygaard months later, and they would be offered a, a tour of his uh, of his Toronto fashion headquarters on on Niagara Street. Uh, all of these tours would end up in his private bedroom at uh, at, at one Niagara Street. The, all of the women uh, alleged that they were violently uh, violently assaulted, sexually assaulted uh, in this suite. So that's kind of the, the common. Mm-hmm. Uh, narrative that that runs through all of these allegations. So they've wrapped up. The defense has the questioning of of their client, of Peter Nygaard. As the Crown gets set to take over, what's your sense from what you've seen so far about how they will frame things and how they will approach their questioning? Well, we heard right off the bat when the Crown opened this case uh, as to how they're going to attempt to um, portray Mr. Nygaard. Uh, you know, in the words of the Crown, Mr. Nygaard is a, a sexual predator, a megalomaniac. They kept using the word wealth, power, prestige, repeated it over and over again, who used his, his influence to to lure, in, in the Crown's words, uh, these women to his headquarters and, and, and do uh, what he wanted um, to them without, you know, the thought of having any recourse. And 
you know, we heard from the defense a very a very different story. His his attorney, you know, well known Canadian lawyer Brian Greenspan, spent the better part of the day uh, allowing Mr. Nygaard to kind of if he wanted to know the biography of Peter Nygaard, you know, being in court over the past few days would have been a good place because he's kind of recounted his you know his childhood and coming to Canada and you know this is a man who's facing very you know, serious criminal allegations, not just here uh, in Toronto and Ontario, but in Manitoba, in Quebec, in New York, but took great joy at kind of, you know, regaling the uh, the courtroom audience with, you know, the kind of tale of, of his life, while at the same time, you know, when, when asked questions about kind of more sordid details, said that, you know, for the last four years, you know, he's dealt with a lot of memory loss issues and, and was unable to remember. So the defense kind of wanted to paint that rags to riches story as someone who built a, a successful, you know, company in Canada with thousands of employees who would have no need to ever engage in any of this kind of behavior that's being alleged, whereas, you know, the Crown and I expect will hear it when the cross-examination of Peter Nygaard begins um, sometime tomorrow will paint the picture that they did initially in this case, that this was a man who used his power, his prestige, to do what he wanted and was, in fact, you know, a sexual predator who left uh, damage not just here, but um, in many jurisdictions across North America and, and possibly around the world. These cases always attract uh, a lot of attention, uh, certainly when there's high-profile people at the center of them and the courtrooms are often full, uh, I can recall. What is it like in this courtroom? in terms of the atmosphere and the response as as he takes the stand? Well, you know, especially over the last few days, the courtroom has definitely been, you know, close to, to capacity. And I think this is the first time, you know, we've heard him, you know, his words, uh, his response to, you know, just the sliver of some of these allegations uh, out there. And, um, you know, not surprisingly, given the fact that there's no, record. It wasn't a digital age when these allegations took place. You know, he's taken the opportunity to, you know, refute them flat out, denying ever knowing these women, uh, ever meeting these women, and, 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 and saying that some of these allegations against him, you know, the most sordid details are something that he would never dream of ever engaging in. There, there's one other bit of uh, testimony I wanted to ask you about, Jamie, uh, this, the discussion of, of some records and a fire. Yeah. It, it was it was interesting, you know, kind of near the end of the day today, as you know, a lot of this case is being about asking people to cast their minds back, you know, 30 years ago. And uh, Mr. Greenspan asked Mr. Nygaard, you know, did you go back into your business records and try to, you know, find the details of where you were uh, during these times and, uh, and and who you may have met during, you know, this time period, you know, beginning back in 1988. And he said that, uh, unfortunately, there had been a, a accidental fire at his Winnipeg headquarters, and much of these records had been, or most of these records had been uh, destroyed. And you could almost see <laughs> Mr. Greenspan, uh, you know, cringe at that answer. I don't know if it was quite the answer that he was, uh, that he was, that he was looking for from his client. Well, we'll see if the Crown picks up and pulls that thread uh, when they get started tomorrow. Jamie, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Neil. I really appreciate it. Take care. That was CBC News reporter Jamie Strachan. We reached him in Toronto. Inside a Swiss bank vault, there's a tiny USB drive that may be worth about $325 million. It's owned by a man named Stefan Thomas. He says it contains the key to thousands of bitcoins, which he put on the drive in 2011. And they're all safely locked away in that vault. But the problem is they're also safely locked away from him because he can't remember the password. And he says he only has two tries left before the drive and the cash are gone for good. Enter a group of hackers who now claim that they know how to get into Stefan's key and get him his money. They just need him to agree to team up with them. Andy Greenberg is a senior writer for Wired. We reached him in New York City. Andy, just take us back to 2011. How did Stefan Thomas get all of this Bitcoin stuck on this USB key in the first place? Well, the story he's told in prior interviews is that he was paid some, I think, almost 10,000 Bitcoins actually for making a video called What is Bitcoin? That is still on YouTube today mm -hmm. that kind of just breaks down what Bitcoin is and how it works. Then he spent some thousands of those and he had 7,002 of them left. 
and he stored them, or actually I think he stored a backup for the keys that control these 7,000 Bitcoins. He, he stored them in three different places, but um, as so often, I don't know, it seems to happen, he accidentally deleted one wallet and then another one somehow. Uh. And then for this third backup, he had written, it was, it was on this encrypted USB key. And then he lost the password for that USB drive, which is called an iron key. And with that, he, you know, lost at the time, I think only about probably less than $7,000. But by the end of that year, it was worth $140,000 by, um, and then today it's worth, you know, close to $240 million. Oh my God. I'm, uh, I think we can all relate to, well, not the, that sum of money, but certainly having a password, forgetting it for a minute. But the stakes here are, are much, much different than, uh, than what we usually deal with. So how does he even try to go about technically trying to retrieve this password? Well, as I said, the Iron Key, this encrypted USB drive that the 7,002 Bitcoins are essentially stored on, um, it gives you 10 tries to guess your password before it essentially just permanently deletes its contents as a security measure so that nobody can just kind of like sit there and try, you know, brute force guessing all of your passwords. So Stephen Thomas has said that he's tried eight passwords and, you know, brainstorms until his brain is nearly broken. And uh, all eight of these passwords that he tried were wrong. He only had two more tries before these Bitcoins are essentially truly lost forever. So then these hackers enter the picture. They say that, that they have the solution to Stefan's problem. Tell us more about what they think they can do. Well, actually, I was I was in Seattle for a, another event, really a work trip, and I um, was told by one of these hackers that, that I should come by their lab and check out their equipment. Where and, and this is a startup called Unciphered, whose entire business model is trying to help people crack their own crypto wallets, cryptocurrency wallets that they have lost access to or forgotten the password to, and then. A couple of months later, Unciphered, after I visited their lab, they, they told me later that they had succeeded, that they had managed to figure out how to crack this 12-year-old Iron Key encrypted thumb drive and, and were about to contact Stefan Thomas to see if they could get him to let them crack his drive and unlock his fortune. In simple terms, how? How did they do it? In the simplest terms, they won't tell me. <laughs> and they want to keep it secret because this encrypted drive is has this certification that allows it to be used for even classified information and and whatever vulnerabilities they've found in it that allow it to be cracked exist in you know in every one of these that are out there they told me some of some of the steps of the process which are kind of incredible i mean they they bought up hundreds of this one model of iron key thumb drive really every every one of them that they could find for sale online then they would like take them out of their case and use this precise laser cutter to cut out the secure element chip, which is what controls the kind of cryptographic secrets on the drive that, that decrypt its content. And then they would take that chip and bathe it in, they would dip it into nitric acid to remove some of the epoxy around it and start to like get down to its wiring. And then, um, then they use this kind of tiny felt brush covered in this silicate solution to slowly abrade off um, the surface of the chip. So how has Stefan Thomas responded to this offer? Well, this is the really weird thing is that essentially Stefan has uh, turned them down, has said no thank you to this incredible technique to crack his iron key that could unlock a quarter billion dollars of his money, essentially. The unciphered team um, through a kind of intermediary approached him and found somebody who would vouch for that their technique actually worked. And, uh, and nonetheless, Stephen Thomas didn't even get as far as asked, you know, as like talking with them about what their fee or commission would be. He just turned them down. Well, do you think there's something fishy here then? I mean, could it be that this this key isn't loaded up with with all he says it is? Well, you know, what Thomas actually says is that he's already working with um, he has handshake agreements, essentially, with two other teams uh, that are working on this problem. I think I talked to one of those, you know, teams who was really just one guy a really impressive hardware hacker named chris tarnovsky and he said that he had not really made any progress on this at all that thomas had talked to him once like more than a year ago that stefan thomas seemed strangely kind of 
to have this lack of urgency about trying to get his massive fortune uh, back. And it is very strange, and it does sort of make you wonder, are these 7,002 Bitcoins truly on this encrypted hard drive? And if they are, then, uh, I don't know, does Stephen Thomas really not want them unlocked? You know, perhaps he secretly has tried 10 times, and the drive is wiped, and he just doesn't really want to say that. I don't know. I don't want to speculate, but it's a it's a strange mystery that's still unfolding. What's your sense of how this mystery is going to be solved, or if it's going to be solved? How do you think it's going to end? I think it's a total toss up. You know, there, I would give it a fifty fifty chance that Stephen Thomas like comes around and realizes that he should just um, make a deal with Unciphered. And I don't know, like maybe there is also just a 50% chance that the drive doesn't have what we think it does on it. That this is like Geraldo Rivera's reveal of Al Capone's tomb in the 80s that like it's just empty inside. Well, Andy, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Andy Greenberg is a senior writer for Wired. We reached him in New York City. The latest ad by Sweden's tourism board begins like this. Leaders and citizens of Switzerland, this is a message from Sweden. We're contacting you regarding our mutual problem. Yes, I'm talking about this. When she says this, she holds a newspaper up with a headline about this. Some of the American press will remember when I got a phone call from the leader of Finland saying, could he come and see me? And he came the next day and said, will you support my joining, my country joining NATO? We got on the telephone. He suggested we call the leader of, of Switzerland. Switzerland, my goodness, I'm, I'm getting really anxious here about expanding NATO. Oh, Sweden. And what happened was... Well, what happened was U.S. President Joe Biden mixed up Sweden and Switzerland while talking to the press at a NATO summit in June. Now, according to the Swedish website Swiss Info... T- Sorry, I mean the Swiss, the Swiss website, Swiss Info. This is a weirdly common problem. Quote, every year, 120,000 people Google the question of whether Sweden and Switzerland are the same. Unquote. So do people just type, is Sweden Switzerland or is Switzerland Sweden? Because it seems strange to just ask if one thing is another thing. I mean, yes, aubergine is eggplant and coriander is cilantro, but one country can't just also be another country. Regardless, whether it's their historic reputations for neutrality or the fact that they both begin with SW, it's that one, the confusion continues. And the tourism agency Visit Sweden has decided to capitalize on that. It's time we make the distinction between our two nations as clear as day by deciding who talks about what. Our proposition is as follows. First of all, Switzerland gets to talk about banks, and Sweden gets to talk about sandbags. Switzerland will focus on mountaintops, and Sweden will focus on rooftops. Switzerland gets to promote loud noises, such as yodeling. In return, Sweden gets silence and a lack of yodeling. LSD goes to Switzerland, because You invented that. And Sweden will get the Northern Lights, a different kind of surreal experience. It goes on like that. A gently humorous ad as charming and colorful as Swedish fish, although it exposes a rivalry as dark as Swiss chocolate. Still, let's hope this campaign helps us all understand that Switzerland is not Sweden, and also an equally important revelation that Sweden is not Switzerland. They've made it very clear, without raising their voices, so let's work together to ensure they weren't just whispering Swede nothings. Music 
You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.